I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The Deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of August 1st, 2016. On today's show, David Epstein of ProPublica will join us to discuss South African track star Castor Semenya and the extremely thorny debate about intersex athletes at the Olympic Games. We'll also speak with Eugene Monroe, the offensive tackle who just retired from pro football at age 29. He's an outspoken advocate of medical marijuana in the NFL and has gone so far as funding a study to evaluate its efficacy. Finally, we'll assess the long and successful career of Ichiro Suzuki, the first Japanese-born position player in the major leagues, who's two hits away from recording the 3,000th hit of his major league career. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hello, Josh. And with us in New York is Mike Pasco, the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist. Hey, Mike. Hey. Um, have you experienced a post-convention bounce? I have. I, I, I did experience a post-convention bounce, but it was because I was listening to a lot of Big Frida records. Big, I thought you were going to say Big Frida records. I thought you were going to say Records, yes. On the, on the Victrola. <laughs> It's a it's an amalgamation of the old and the new. I thought you were going to say you went to one of your kids' uh, birthday parties. Yeah, I've been reading a lot about injuries in what they call trampoline parks. Now, if you didn't know what a trampoline park was 30 years ago, and I said there's going to be this thing in society called trampoline parks, your next statement would be, there must be a huge rise in injuries, wouldn't it? Yes, I believe there would. In our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, the trampoline will be mentioned. Uh, Dave Epstein will be here to help us decide which sports should be added to the Olympic program and which should be subtracted. 
You can sign up for Slate Plus to get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts. And if you do sign up, you get a free two-week trial. Get it at slate.com slash hangupplus. In 2009, 18-year-old South African Caster Semenya came from obscurity to win gold in the 800 meters at the World Track and Field Championships. A few hours before that race, news broke that the sport's governing body had ordered a test to determine Semenya's sex. And one of her fellow competitors said flat out, she is a man. The truth is a lot more complicated than that. Semenya is intersex, meaning she has both male and female characteristics, and her natural testosterone levels are far higher than those of typical female competitors. Semenya was cleared to come back to competition, and in 2011, the governing body of track and field put in place new rules on hyperandrogenism, meaning that women like Semenya, who have naturally elevated testosterone, had to take hormones to get to more quote-unquote normal levels. With her testosterone levels suppressed, Semenya still won silver in the 800 in 2012, but that ruling on testosterone was reversed by the Court of Arbitration for Sport in 2015, and the practice of testosterone regulation in female athletes has been suspended until 2017. Semenya won the 400, 800, and 1500 meters at the South African Olympic trials, according to Ross Tucker, a South African physiologist who runs the website The Science of Sport. She's about six seconds faster in the 800 meters than she was when her testosterone was suppressed. And she is the favorite to win gold in the 800 in Rio. She could also win the 400 as well. In a piece for The Guardian, Donald McRae described Semenya as an Olympic favorite and a ticking time bomb, given the certainty that her success will ignite debates about gender and testosterone and fairness. Joining us now to discuss this is David Epstein, who's a reporter for ProPublica and the author of the book, The Sports Gene, Inside the Science of Extraordinary Athletic Performance. Hey, Dave. Hey. So you wrote about uh, sex and testosterone in your book and its effect on performance. So what is the kind of capsule summary here? Well, in terms of the effect of testosterone, it's it's the main driver of most of the differences between uh, men and women athletically, and that ranges from denser bones that can support uh, more muscle, um, a greater response to a lot of types of training, but also endurance. Um, one of the reasons men have a greater oxygen carrying capacity is because testosterone spurs the production of red blood cells. So greater stature, more muscle mass, uh, longer limbs proportional to the body, um, all those all those sorts of traits that you kind of associate with the differences between men and women. It's not the only driver of those, but it is the primary one. So the debate about Semenya and other intersex athletes, it always gets um, described in terms of fairness, right? And what's fair and what's unfair? Is it fair for her to have her testosterone suppressed? Is it fair for the other athletes to compete against her? One thing that we know for certain is unfair is the way that she was, you know, outed essentially in 2009 and the results of the sex verification testing were kind of put out in the press. Um, What can you tell us about that, Dave? Um, What was found about Semenya and what are your thoughts on kind of how she's been talked about since. Well, so Semenya herself has never confirmed a lot of this, so or anything really. So all we know is is sort of what's been reported. And um, what's been reported was that she was found to have XY chromosomes, um, but 
to which you know normally um, is uh, male uh, chromosomes, um, and to have internal testes that that never developed uh, the way a male's would, no ovaries, um, higher testosterone, um, female genitalia. So it's this sort of um, mix of characteristics. For most of us, of course, sports breaks down cleanly into male and female, or it would like to. And for most of us, all the levels of sex determination, so chromosomal, genetic, psychological, physiological, uh, reproductive, are are either in agreement, either all male or all female, but that's not the case for everyone. And in fact, um, those sort of mixed characteristics tend to be very highly overrepresented among women's elite athletes. And uh, Tucker did an interview with a woman named Joanna Harper, who is a scientist and an athlete and transgender. And she said, quote, she wouldn't be surprised to see, quote, an all-intersex podium in the 800 in Rio. Uh, Tucker was a little more dubious about how many athletes, uh, intersex athletes, would be competing in that race. But it seems clear that there are, as you just mentioned, a preponderance or, or certainly larger than average number of intersex athletes who are, are competing in these middle-distance uh, track events. So the question, I think, is what do you do about it? Tucker believes that Castor Semenya should not be allowed to compete, that there is this advantage from her biological makeup. International sports officials have tried this upper range of testosterone limits. I mean, what, what's the right approach here? Or is it so complicated that the only thing to do is really say, we can't put any limits at this point because we don't know enough scientifically? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And by the way, Joanna Harper, in addition to being a scientist, is also um, a transgender woman who won an age group national cross country championship. So has a very interesting perspective. Um, but, you know, there's no way. The problem is that biological sex does not break down into male and female as clearly in this clean binary as sports governing bodies would like it to. And so you have to be unfair to someone. Right. And it's not even just a question of intersex conditions. So never mind intersex. There's like a huge overrepresentation of a condition called partial 21 hydroxylase deficiency in female athletes, which just causes an increased production in testosterone, but without intersex characteristics. Men have that, too, but it adds like a drop in the bucket to their testosterone, whereas for women, it causes a huge increase in their testosterone. So there's this whole range of conditions. And how do you sort of regulate these? And, and I think Ross and I agree exactly on what the science says, right? This testosterone is not a spectrum. A high-level woman in a reference range is three to 400% lower than a low man. So if you have to make an arbitrary divider, that that's, you know, a reasonable one. But my feeling is that, you know, you have to be unfair either to some of the people who feel like they're competing with someone who has an advantage or to the person who at no fault of their own has an advantage. And my feeling is that the downside of having sports governing bodies involved in biological sex testing is so large that I would take them out of that business. And, and that's how it's been for most of history anyway, and I don't think it's ruined women's sports. So this is an interesting case where you can really agree exactly on the science and really disagree exactly on what should be done about it. And there's no perfect answer. So I think the International Olympic Committee needs to be really clear that they're drawing an arbitrary line no matter what they're doing. Science isn't going to save them with some clean answer. I believe a few things. I believe that exactly what you said. This is not one of those without victims. There's no solution that we could come up with that either doesn't victimize people in Castor's category or the millions of people who aren't. 
I also believe that it's really easy to attack the lowest hanging fruit of the bad arguments of the other side, like how the uh, governing bodies outed uh, Caster and some of the things that have been said by, you know, miffed uh, competitive athletes. I think that's true. Subtle takedown of my intro. (laughs) (laughs) I want to ask you, though, though, David, I really hearken to what Ross Tucker has to say. Uh, You just said you agree with him on the science, so you come to different conclusions on what should be done. Is he an A plus expert? Would you say? Do you put? Does, are there are there warning flags with this guy? He seems great For to Ross, me. No, yeah. A plus expert. A plus expert. Okay. And Joanna is I probably the best expert in the world. Good. Uh, secondly, why is the eight hundred uh, and these middle distance and not? Uh, no one's ever thought this or said this about Allison Felix in the sprint. Why not maybe uh, longer distances as the event that uh, intersects athletes are drawn to or are good at. Yeah, that's a really interesting question, and I I don't totally know the answer to that. I mean, you you do see, um, you know, this does come up in some of the sprinting events. It's just, I think one of the reasons it's come up in the 800 so much is, well, one, because Caster basically ran away when nobody had heard of Caster Semenya in 2009. She, like, looked over her shoulder and just ran away from the rest of the field. So it's such a dramatic win where sprinters kind of stay in their lanes. It often doesn't look as dramatic. But also I think it's possible, and Ross and I have talked about this a little bit, and it's not conclusive, that... The 800 is this sort of, I mean, I was a national level 800 meter runner and there's this kind of combination of different energy systems of power and endurance that where you might have sort of a raft of unique advantages from um, from increased testosterone and some of the other, it's combination of greater endurance, greater oxygen carrying capacity as well as greater strength. Would it be... Um, at all feasible or overly Solomonic to to not to have inconsistent or differing rules about levels of testosterone or what defines male or female, not just in different federations, but for different events within federations. So you could say, you know, from the 400 to the 1500, we're not going to do any biological testing, but on the outsides we are. And this will at least give the message to someone who, uh, a, uh, an athlete without any intersex characteristics who says to themselves, there's no way I'm ever going to be able to medal in the 800. Well, maybe they should, you know, try to start training for a different event now. Yeah, I mean, you could. It's just every time you have to draw a new arbitrary line, you just make more complexities and you just shift who you who, who feels like they're being unfairly treated. I mean, the ultimate example of this is in the Paralympics, which, of course, there's less attention on. Yeah. But literally in the Paralympics, there are people having to decide if a swimmer with two arms and one leg is equal to a swimmer with two legs and one arm. Mm-hmm. Right? And there are all different categories in the Paralympics, right. too. And there are all different grades, which aren't. It's all arbitrary. But if you have. So in men's Olympics, I guess. If if something occurs naturally in your body, game on. In men's competition. That's right. Yeah, game on. Right. But once you have any line where you're saying either it has to be a physical disability or either it's uh, we're going to have uh, not allow men to compete, you're embracing the ambiguity and ambiguity leads to arbitrariness of the lines. So I say either – I. I I know that you said that there's a downside to the international bodies enforcing arbitrary lines, but they've got to. That's their job no. if you have ambiguous categories. When, and I should say, I, I'm not – again, I feel very solid in the science, but I don't feel super solid in my opinion. I actually go back and forth sometimes. And, and one of the interesting things you mentioned is, right, anything is allowed in the men's category. And so, you know, one thing that 
some people might argue is fair to say, well, instead of taking, we could just take the 20 fastest 100 meter runners instead of the 10 fastest men and 10 fastest. It could just be a straight meritocracy, right? Yeah. But the reason we've created this designated class is because the best women wouldn't be able to compete with the best men if we and did that. And a large part of that is testosterone. Right. And so, yeah. so you've created this designated class. Alice Dreger, who's been involved in this issue a lot, she's a bioethicist and a medical historian who's consulted on a lot of these issues, has said that I mean, she told me in my book, quote, unquote, that the the female class is, is structured like a disabled class, was her words. And so she compared it kind of to aspects of the Paralympics and said, well, it has to be meaningful what someone has to do to gain entry into that class. That said, her feeling was still more along the lines of the way I feel right now, which was um, – and she'd been the president of the North American Intersex uh, Society, and she's not intersex herself, but – which is if someone has legitimately lived and feels like uh, a woman their entire life, like then they compete as a woman. That is the best solution for the woman. I don't know if it's the best solution for the other women that she's competing against. I should say, though, the, the person who called out Castor the most saying, oh, she's a man, she's a man, has now been suspended for injecting testosterone and has been stripped of those results, too. So, Wow. Well, this just really makes you kind of step back. And realize, you know, we take for granted the idea that there are men's sports and women's sports and that dividing line makes sense to us. But just as we've been talking about, it's just so much fuzzier and more gray. And Tucker makes the point that, um, and I'm quoting from him here, we have a separate category for women because without it, no women would even make the Olympic Games. Most of the women's world records, even doped, lie outside the top 5,000 times run by men. And I think we would all agree, and I think the vast, vast majority of people in the world agree that there should be women's sports. But as just a thought experiment, Dave, what would it look like if instead of having categories for men and women, there were categories, and let's just focus on track and field, for people who had testosterone levels Within a certain range. If it was like weight classes for boxing, sort of. Yeah. Right? Like mm-hmm. testosterone classes. I, I don't think anybody knows the answer to that. Um, you know, in to some degree, that is what we have by separating males and females for the most part. But obviously, in some cases, there's this this overlap. I don't know what it would look like. I think it would be incredibly hard to to because and of course testosterone is not the only thing mm-hmm. right so once you start saying testosterone, then why not various other physiological characteristics? So. Um, you know, I don't think it would be it would be totally plausible. But I mean, if you want to look at the biggest difference in, in like an obvious difference in testosterone rise, you can look at boys' sports pre and post puberty, right? And that's basically right. just purely testosterone difference. Isn't the other risk here that when the bureaucrats get involved, it gets muddier and muddier? Uh, there was a case involving an Indian runner named Duti Chand, yeah. uh, in which she was banned. Uh, from from running, she took her case to the court of arbit- of arbitration for sport, which issued a ruling that backed her. She had elevated testosterone levels. It wasn't clear how much um, or how this was influencing her performance. But the opinion that they released was, I think, a, a classic example of right intentions, but completely fuzzy 
logic. I mean, they said that while the evidence indicates that higher levels of naturally occurring testosterone may increase athletic performance, fine. The panel is not satisfied that the degree of that advantage is more significant than the advantage derived from the numerous other variables which the parties acknowledge also affect female athletic performance. For example, nutrition, access to specialist training facilities and coaching, and other genetic and biological variations. That felt to me like that feels terrible, like a terrible answer to me. They blew it on the science in part because there are well-meaning um, academics who misportrayed some of the science to them, right? Like one of the things that was used was this uh, this study that showed that in elite athletes, men's and women's testosterone like overlapping all the time, but the data was actually collected for a drug testing procedure. So it was taken right after events, after people race and men's testosterone after they race plummets and women's stays the same or even goes up. So to take reference range measurements, it has to be like in the morning, fasted, you know, you haven't done anything. So this was used in an incredibly inappropriate way. Actually, Alice Greger and right. I wrote a letter to the New York Times. Basically, which which is the point, it. right? That we allow these bureaucrats and judges and, and sportocrats to be involved in making these very complex scientific decisions. And it's going to be muddy false or and dangerous and unfair. And and when I said I don't I think the downsides of these groups being involved in this kind of thing are are great. I think they've proven that and I don't think that's the case for any kind of governance. I think specifically the IOC and the IAAF have proven themselves particularly specifically incompetent and and frankly rude in the way they handle this stuff. Well, maybe the solution is if you're going to adjudicate on issues of intersex athletes, you have a panel that include advocates and intersex individuals and hopefully people with a scientific background. But this very much reminds me of the Oscar Pistorius debate where I think the three of us all decided that it's a great inspiring story, but the guys using a machine and people who weren't steeped in the world of sports and their values weren't, well, let's have the guy who won be the actual deserving winner. Most laymen, I think, just enjoyed the story of Pistorius so much that it seemed inspirational. Um, with this issue, there's maybe more societal pushback, but I do have to point out that if you read a lot about it, we, we all want to be decent people. We're all in this moment where we're, our eyes are being open to sensitivity and uh, embracing of the trans community. But the only name of any of the 800 runners that I know <laughs> is Caster. So the other people are, to me, the, the people that she's beating by uh, seconds now that she's no longer have to take testosterone inhibition. I don't know. They're abstractions. And... You know, it, it almost seems like there's a Title IX claim that they could make, that they don't have the opportunity now because of no one's cheating, but just because of the rules. And I, I don't know. I just think that it's a tough decision, but it seems to me there are downsides to enforcing the rules however you do, but it just seems to me not in keeping with priorities of fairness and saying that you are the fastest woman in the world to allow Castor to run without taking any testosterone inhibition, even though I'll cheer her story and I'll think it's great when she, you know, is strides ahead of the competition. I mean, it's a good point. And, you know, I tend to come down on the side of whoever's viewpoint I'm looking from that day, basically. Yeah. But you mentioned, you know, bringing in different stakeholders and scientists and the NCAA actually did that to come up with transgender policy and did a much better job, which is why you haven't heard as much about it. You know, and I'm not one to give the NCAA unnecessary compliments, but they did a much better job than the IOC and the IAAF. As long as nobody's getting paid, then then I think we can all be, be happy. <laughs> all right. Or, or, or enjoying bagels, but without locks. Yeah. 
And by the way, David, I got exiled I, from talking to Pistorius for uh, writing about his biomechanical advantage. So it is very similar in those kinds of issues in these arbitrary lines. David Epstein is a reporter for ProPublica, and he's the author of the book, The Sports Gene. Dave, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. On July 21st, offensive lineman Eugene Monroe announced his retirement from the NFL in what has become the standard retirement format, an essay in the Players' Tribune. That essay read in part, I'm only 29 and I still have the physical ability to play at a very high level. So I know my decision to retire may be puzzling to some, but I'm thinking of my family first right now and my health and my future. The last 18 years have been full of traumatic injuries to both my head and my body. I'm not complaining, just stating a fact. Has the damage to my brain already been done? Do I have CTE? I hope I don't, but over 90% of the brains of former NFL players that have been examined showed signs of the disease. I am terrified. Two months before, Monroe had published another essay on the Players' Tribune, that one about players' reliance on painkillers like Toradol to make it through the physically punishing work of being a pro football player. In that essay and elsewhere, he's advocated for the use of medical marijuana to treat chronic pain and head injuries and has donated $80,000 to researchers at the University of Pennsylvania and Johns Hopkins to study the potential benefits of marijuana use in football players. The newly retired Eugene Monroe is joining us by phone now. Hey, Eugene. Hey, what's going on, guys? It's great to have you. Um, And just wanted to start by asking, you know, you wrote in the Players' Tribune about just the experience of week-to-week life in the NFL and the pain and the injuries. Just what did it take to get you ready to play in a pro football game? It takes a lot to get ready to go each weekend, whether it's getting up and training and then going and and beating yourselves up to get ready for the games and and managing your body while it's tough. You you have to essentially create a regimen to get yourself ready, and that that can include anything uh, from the things you do for nutrition and rest and supplementation for recovery and all sorts of different training and body work uh, methods that guys put together just to get ready. It's literally a around the clock job taking care of your body during, during the football year. In that piece for the Players' Tribune advocating for the use of medical marijuana, Eugene, you, you write about the T-train, players lining up to get Toradol injections before games. This is a conversation I've had with my friend Nate Jackson, uh, who was in the Broncos training camp that I wrote about. Uh, Jake Plummer, the quarterback uh, on that team, has been an outspoken advocate and a, and a, and a paid uh, endorser of some uh, medical marijuana um, distributors. Our distributor, the attempt to sort of wean players or get the NFL and the NFLPA to move away from opioid use seems to be at the heart of a lot of your and Nate and Jake's efforts here. It's very central, and we all recognize 
that we have a serious issue with opioids in the NFL. We've all been on various teams. I mean, you get to see just how many guys are prescribed these pills, and it's a, a good number. It's a, a high number and in great frequency because there are so many uh, injuries. So, you know, we see guys retire and then talk about how they struggled while they played being addicted to those pills. They, they were in so much pain during their career, and it was the most readily available option for them. The access to the pills in the NFL is very easy. Do you think your performance, not just how you felt, but your actual performance, because football teams and football fans, they have no sympathy in their hearts. They want performance. Do you think your performance would have been aided? Do you think you would have been able to start more games, play more plays, do better in the plays you played? That's a very loaded question because there's potential for cannabis to alleviate a lot of the symptoms from injuries I've had, whether it's the fact that the government patents neuroprotection as one of the things cannabis can do, and I've sustained some some head injury, and and also managing pain in a safer way, and certainly I've, I've been prescribed and I've taken all of the anti-inflammatory and pain pills as well. And those, those never really made me feel good. Um, at one point, I remember my first year in the league experimenting really with different anti-inflammatories because I was carrying some swelling on my knee uh, that I had surgery on that was causing me problems. And I, I had surgery on it again after the season was over. But you know, took all of those pills each week just to uh, make it through practice and, and the games, uh, you know, and, and what if I didn't have to do that? Uh, you know, I could have taken something much safer. Uh, and, you know, these pills do long-term damage as well. So, you know, while we're not thinking really of the, the long-term impacts while we're taking these pills, they're just for the immediate relief, get me back on the field. And, you know, that's, it's important to look at the longevity uh, factor, especially, you know, if you think of what's invested into the, the athletes. There's a lot of money at stake here, and, and I would think you'd want your guys to be healthy. And you, in that piece, uh, called on the NFL and the NFL Players Association to do three things. Take marijuana off of the banned substances list, fund medical marijuana research, especially as it relates to CTE, and stop over-prescribing opioids. Do you think that the NFL or do you see any signs that the NFL or the Players Association can be receptive to that? And what would it take to get them to be more receptive to those steps? I've been reaching out to the NFLPA and they've been receptive to these initiatives, particularly looking at research, because we we understand that there's a serious problem in how we deal with pain management and you know any solution to what we're currently doing which is prescribing pills is is uh worth taking a look into and you know i'm happy that they've at least recognized that fact and are working towards finding a solution and it's going to be key to do research to prove that this is beneficial and also uh safer than what we're already doing yeah i think the research element is really essential, as you said. And I think it's really cool that you're putting your money where your mouth is and funding the research. Mark Cuban has talked about this with HGH, and he's funded 
studies that whether you come in with the presumption that a drug or a substance is good or if it's bad, people don't actually care about the data most of the time and that the league will just, you know, demonize a substance or put it on a banned list without actually having any data to back up what they're doing. And unfortunately, when you look at cannabis, that's the the way it's worked for years and years. Even now, its status without really any legitimate medical reason as to why it's a Schedule One substance. But but certainly the need for gathering this data to prove either way, whether it's beneficial or not, we'll know if we're able to actually study and understand how the plant works on a much more intricate level uh, that they allow for some more dangerous substances even. Do you think that part of the issue here is that when a lot of the public or maybe the owners of the teams, when they think about marijuana, it's seen as a recreational drug, you know, stoners, guys who are like, quote unquote, getting in trouble with the law, that there's this kind of cultural presumption that if somebody is smoking weed, then it's necessarily a bad thing or a sign of moral depravity. It's not even a suggestion. Look at how they've handled Josh Gordon. Well, it's unfortunate that people's character comes into question when they're associated with cannabis. And we've seen that some of our most successful athletes, some of uh, our country's very successful business people, uh, even the leaders of our country have consumed cannabis at one point. So to demonize something that's less harmful than many of the substances that people indulge in every day I could name alcohol, a beverage that's uh, intertwined in the sport of football, and we demonize people for using cannabis. Uh, it's it's really absurd when you look at the data and the dangers uh, of these substances and compare them. Yeah, my Bud Light bottle has a logo of the Baltimore Ravens on it. That would be cool if you could get that with a, at a cannabis dispensary. Anyway, I'm just throwing it out there. What I wanted to ask you about was this. Beyond the cannabis question, the NFL have a really odd and problematic relationship with just the issue of pain. It seems to me that they will look at an athlete, clear the structure of a shoulder or a knee and, and, you know, scope it out and say, okay, that looks like you'll be able to play on it. And then what do they do? Do they ask you about the pain? Do they just figure and now suck it up as much as you can, like all the players around you and before you have done? Do they even care about pain? They do, uh, specifically because Pain also uh, it's it's a function, and it can shut down your your ability to perform. Literally, it can shut down some of your muscles if you're experiencing pain. So they don't want that. Uh, they want to get rid of any of the pain and inflammation that may be causing adverse effects to your performance. Eugene, you're 29 and you're you, you've, you've retired for very good reasons, and you're not obviously the first NFL player to raise these concerns or the first NFL player to step away from the game during uh, a time when he could still be making millions of dollars. What are you afraid of the most, and what concerns you in your day to day life? I know you've written about your kids sort of telling you, Daddy, you can't remember anything, or Daddy, why'd you put your cell phone in the freezer? How are you sort of coping with the the day-to-day consequences of having played football from a a very, very young age? 
Well, fortunately for me at this point, I feel like mentally I'm still intact and I'm sharp and I'm not dealing with many adverse effects outside of maybe some infrequent headaches and and then, you know, my family saying maybe I, I don't remember stuff. I don't know. But, you know, I've seen guys that experience much worse and at a very young age. Mm-hmm. So putting eyes on those guys and really understanding what they're going through and how it also affects their families. And uh, once my eyes are open to that and some of the problems that guys face that we don't hear about, it really put things into perspective for me in terms of, what the real possibilities are for my future and continuing to put myself at risk to be in that position uh, for me was, was not really a responsible idea. So you signed a contract, a five-year deal with the Ravens in uh, March of 2014. You ended up missing uh, 17 of 34 regular season games towards, you know, the end of your time with the team. Did you get the sense that the the Ravens were frustrated with you? I mean, players develop a reputation, you know, often unfair for being injury prone or injury plagued. Um, what kind of response did you get from management and folks around the team? I never got a direct response from management uh, although I did get the sense there may have been some frustration. However, you know, injury in the NFL a lot of times is, most of the time, is unavoidable. And it's well known in, in that organization that uh, I'm someone who, who took great care of, of all aspects of, of the job. I treated it uh, with the professional nature that I, I thought it deserved. And that meant taking care of uh, everything to the best of my ability, whether it be my body and my training and preparing myself uh, to play each week and taking care of business off the field and, and doing the right things for my family. I think they understood that. So, you know, any angst towards me being injured may lie more in disappointment, you know, that I wasn't able to perform more so than anger, I would hope. And when the team released you, they released you about a month before you retired. What do you think the factors were that contributed to that decision? I didn't have a conversation at length with them about why they were deciding to release me. I was attending the first day of our mini camp and getting ready to go to practice. And I was pulled aside and told that day I'd be, uh, released or traded. So, uh, and that was really it. I, I went home and uh, told my wife and uh, we thought about our next steps. And almost immediately I was offered by a few other teams. And, uh, you know, I was also still wrestling with the decision of whether or not I, I should continue to play. Um, so I had, there was a lot going on at the time and just uh uh, interesting experience uh, being released and, and not really understanding why. Uh, so, you know, anything I, I'd say would just be a guess. Uh, but it doesn't matter at this point. Right. One last question. 
One of your offensive line teammates was John Urschel. Over the offseason, he worked out with the MIT football team while he was working on his PhD. And I just have to say, that is one smart offensive line you had there in Baltimore. <laughs> what was it like working with that dude? It was fun. John's uh, an intelligent guy, and uh, he's also fun to be around. He, he works hard. He's good at what he does, and he has a passion for something that many people can't understand. Uh it's pretty cool to see him have success at that. Uh, and I know he's uh, hard at work even even during training camp, just staying sharp on some of the things that he needs to. Uh, he's a pretty smart guy. Mathematics, yeah. He's working on his PhD in math. I think you should just pay him a couple uh, hundred bucks to just prove that uh, the medical marijuana uh, works. I think you'd be able to do it. <laughs> he could be had for 100 <laughs> All right, Eugene, best of luck in your retirement, and thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, guys. Take care. Thanks for having me. Eugene, that was great. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Take care, guys. Good luck with everything. Talk soon. Bye-bye. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. And that is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. At age 42, he'll turn 43 in October, Ichiro Suzuki is having his best season since 2012 when he was a spry 38-year-old. Ichiro, who's now a part-time outfielder for the Miami Marlins, is hitting 323 with a 395 on base percentage. On Friday, he showed off his throwing arm. He fired a 92-mile-per-hour strike from left field to throw out a Cardinals base runner at home. At some point, probably this week, he'll get the two hits he needs and become the 30th player in Major League history to reach the 3,000-hit milestone, which is pretty nuts considering he didn't start his major league career until he was 27 years old. When Ichiro debuted with the Seattle Mariners in 2001, he was the first Japanese-born position player in Major League Baseball history. He hit 350 his first year. He made 10 straight All-Star games. In 2004, he set an all-time record for hits and a single season with 262. That broke an 84-year-old record. Though Ichiro's success led major league clubs to sign more Japanese players, it seems wrong to think of him in terms of his influence on the game. His style of play was then and remains now unique in baseball history. Mike, what are your thoughts on Ichiro? I love that guy. That guy is fun to watch. And then the more you know about him or get to know about him, he's fascinating. I think that if Ichiro, by the way, he can, he speaks English well, but he doesn't speak it as well as perhaps he would like. And he's really eloquent about why he speaks through an interpreter. And therefore, the quotes that you read of Ichiro are eye-opening and you say to yourself, wow, this is the most thoughtful guy. But I have this theory that if he pushed himself or if he's if he spoke English more, or, I don't know, maybe it's a hypothetical where if he could, you know, approximate 85% of the eloquence in English as he does in Japanese, he might be 
transcendent. He might be the kind of guy that, you know, redefines a lot of things about how we think about athletes and sport. And the enduring questions of Ichiro are just that, like as great as he is, and he showed that you could do it another way. Why has no one else tried to do it? I know it goes, you know, he gets base hits and era when getting on base is valued more than base hits, but it would seem to me that at least one or two other people would try to do it. Or maybe it's the Rick Barry underhand free throwness of uh, the situation. He doesn't look like he's a small guy who slaps the ball and does high calisthenic leg kicks uh, in warm-ups, and that's just not seen as the cool thing to do in baseball. Ichiro's entire life has been shaped around being this kind of a baseball player. Um, you read about his childhood and hitting 500 balls a day with a shovel and his father making him a left-handed batter, even though he's a natural righty so that he could leave the batter's box before you know, striking the ball um, or get a running start while swinging. Um and the resistance to changing over the years. I mean, there, there have been coaches and managers who have urged over, over time, urged Ichiro to be, try to become a power hitter, to hit more home runs. And then he'll go out in batting practice and crank 20 into the upper deck. You know, there's this idea that Ichiro could have won the home run derby, but he has been so focused on his routine and what made him successful from a very young age that his inability or his refusal to deviate from that is what makes him so fascinating. I mean, he has this monomaniacal routine about preparing and playing baseball that I don't think we have seen in the sport before. Well, Mike, you mentioned his ability to speak English, I think. And Spanish. There was a Wall Street <laughs> Journal that. story about how he likes to trash talk Spanish-speaking first baseman when he's on the bases as kind of a joke. But there is this cultural expectation around him, and I think a lot of the mystique about him is in the fact that he doesn't speak English in interviews, that he seems like Zen-like. And all of the stories that are written about, you know, the routines he does with his bats and the rituals that he does with his feet, there's this kind of fetishization mm -hmm. of his otherness, of his Japanese-ness that he has kind of played up, I think. And it just is of a piece with the fact that nobody plays like him. Right. And it's interesting to try to disaggregate how much of this is, you know, the you know self-presentation that he wants to make, how much of it is what we're imposing on him, kind of where um, those two intersect. But well, part of it feels to me like there's a Tim Duncan-ness to him. He doesn't give a shit at, about the public perception of it. I mean, he's had Japanese reporters trailing him around for, for, for every, you know, every game since he came to the United States. Nothing has changed, though. It hasn't like he's tried to become this transcendent personality, and it doesn't feel forced like he's doing this in order to create that personality. Well, I do feel like he cares. I feel like, like what Mike was saying, when you can speak English really well, but make the choice to only speak in Japanese. That's like a conscious decision that you've made about how you want to present yourself. But that's a conscious yourself. decision not to assimilate in a way that would be appealing to American reporters or the American public. Well, the Tim Duncan analogy is interesting in that I think they're both eminently decent people, 
but right. we find out things about Duncan and they're funny or quirky or he likes or maybe nerdy, you know, his wizard tattoo. Mm-hmm. But I don't know how many of them make us say Tim Duncan seems to be one of the finest people that I've ever heard of. And I don't feel like I really know him. The distance doesn't create this chasm where you say to you, I think I say to myself with Duncan, if we knew him more, we'd very much like him, but he wouldn't impress us as the kind of guy who maybe should be, you know, run for office in his country. Um, Although, you know, I hear the uh, U.S. Virgin Islands uh, have some openings. But with Ichiro, you hear these stories about how he does things that no other players do and how he... um, integrates himself in all the groups in the clubhouse. And I think you mentioned how he learned Spanish phrases just so he could get along with uh, Latin players and how in in an all-star game, all the Venezuelan players, I think, were taking a picture and they're like, Ichiro, Ichiro, get in here. And then there's this other story about how he wanted to visit a Negro League Hall of Fame, uh, he alone, and he apparently gave the biggest donation, though they wouldn't disclose what it was. You know, he's not a black baseball player. He's a Japanese baseball player. So it does seem maybe because he's not been doing so much press and it doesn't seem to be the kind or he's not doing American press ubiquitously. Maybe we inflate his goodness. But I suspect that if he were, he would be the kind of player that we would say this guy is different from every other player, not just in style, but in, you know, the quality of his uh, thought and soul. That anecdote was in uh, Tommy Tomlinson's profile on ESPN, and that's it's a terrific read. And the other thing in there is that you, you the comments that Ichiro made that did get sort of pulled out um, about Pete Rose and the sort of subtle dig that uh, about uh, Ichiro passing Pete Rose in terms of total number of professional hits. He had 1,278 hits in Japan and in aggregate has more hits than Pete Rose. And he went at Rose, you know, he said, I was actually happy to see the hit king get defensive. I kind of felt I was accepted. I heard that about five years ago, Pete Rose did an interview and he said that he wished that I could break that record. Obviously, this time around, it was different vibe. In the 16 years that I've been here, what I've noticed is that in America, when people feel like a person is below them, not just in numbers, but in general, they will kind of talk you up, but that when they get up to the same level or maybe even higher, they get in attack mode. They are maybe not as supportive. I kind of felt that this time. And that's a really perceptive observation, not just about Pete Rose, but about American culture and about the the American media that he swims around in. Well, Ben Lindbergh wrote about this in The Ringer, and the Japanese professional league is not at the same level as the major leagues. If you look at translated stats, if you look at the fact that Tuffy Rhodes hit, you know, 50-something home runs in Japanese uh, pro baseball. And Tuffy Rhodes also hit three home runs on opening day. Love Tuffy Rhodes. (laughs) But, you know, the point that Lindbergh made was, Ichiro played at the exact same level from, you know, the age of 20 when he was in, you know, the highest levels of Japanese baseball. And then into the major leagues, he had 350 in his first season. So if he had been in the majors from age 20, he would have the record. They play 130 games a season in Japan too. Right. So you you can have this argument multiple ways. He does not have the record because he was not in the major leagues. If you want to just talk in pure hypotheticals, he probably would have it if he had been. And the question, you know, that you started off the segment with, Mike, about why don't other people try to play like this? I think Occam's razor here is because other people can't play like this. Because, you know, as, as Stefan was saying, in batting practice, apparently, he can just hit home run after home run after home run, and he chooses to play the game in, in the way that he plays it by, you know, 
relying on placement and, you know, getting on base through hits. And there was a time in his career, he came to the majors in the kind of early sabermetric mm-hmm. days. And Ben McGrath wrote a piece for Slate that was like in keeping with the, you know, quote unquote smart sense at the time. Like I believed this as well. It's like Ichiro is overrated because, you know, he is a singles hitter and doesn't hit for power. But kind of later in the last, you know, few years, we've come to understand that like the contributions he made from base running and defense meant that he's one of the, like, you know, Lindbergh said, he's like one of the top four most valuable players in the major leagues from 2001 to 2010. And that we didn't really, we thought that he was just kind of like number grubbing by just wanting to get all of these hits, but he was actually playing in a way that made his teams way, way better um, obviously, than they would have been without him. And if he weren't playing in the so-called, so-called steroid era, how much better would that be as being one of the most valuable players at a time when the other really valuable players were jacking home runs, perhaps mm-hmm. uh, aided? I and, and by the way, he did, just on, on a stats basis, as a 20-year-old, the guy had 200 hits. As a 20-year-old in Japan, which is a little bit better than AAA, you know, it's not quite major leagues, but that's something, and remember, they play fewer games. So... He had, you can't go by at-bats because Ichiro almost never walks, but he had 546 at-bats and 200 hits in 546 at-bats. And his arm is, I think, the greatest arm possibly in the history of outfields beyond his uh, positioning. And though I do come back to no one else can do it as well, but there's not a guy who has a bat that's maybe too big for his body who does, who slaps the ball and tries to be out of the batter's box uh, as he makes contact. You know, little things like that that shows that, I mean, fine, you won't be Ichiro. You won't be the fourth best player for a decade. But if you have that speed and if you have some of that those skills and you try to refine it, and maybe this is the most important thing, if you have an organization that says, ah, we, we, we look at you, D. Gordon, and we know that you have certain skills in baseball, but you have such great hand-eye coordination and you have such speed, why don't you try to do it a little more like the Ichiro way? Or identify a bunch of guys who could maybe become mini Ichiros, and maybe one or two of them do. It, as opposed to having everyone be, you know, the next Chris Davis, 200 strikeouts, swing from your heels, couple true outcome guys. Everyone's doing that. Well, I, I think we should also acknowledge the fact that when he came over, there was a huge amount of skepticism about whether he would succeed in baseball. And he was kind of representing Japanese position players. And if he had flopped you know, a lot of guys who came after him wouldn't have gotten the chance or would, you know, not as many of them would have would have gotten a chance. And so he really had to overcome, you know, the doubts of his own manager, Lou Pinella, and just the fact that he was so successful so fast. I mean, we'd seen that with Hideo Nomo and Nomo Mania in the mid-90s. Like, I think once he succeeded especially being in seattle people were just like so excited and ready to embrace him but you know it could have gone another direction ichido has said he wants to play until he's 50 in the major leagues until he's 50 i'm not sure we should doubt him i mean that's obviously hyperbolic i think we should doubt him i mean teams may not (laughs) want to keep him on their roster 45 46 he's he was not good before this year he's having a good season 
he is. Um, and, you know, Julio Franco Correct. Didn't, didn't even make it until he was 50. Ricky. And How far did Ricky? Ricky's still playing, isn't he? Is Ricky still playing in the Atlantic League, Mike? I think he's, I think he's playing for a <laughs> Tel Aviv team. <laughs> Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Now it's time for After Balls. And we shouldn't just celebrate Ichiro Suzuki. There's a reporter uh, from Japan, Nobuyushi Kobayashi, who has been following him around. He's been on the Ichiro beat exhaustively ever since Ichiro made the major leagues. Uh, He said in the story uh, for USA Today Sports, people ask me, is it getting boring? I always answer, no, not at all. Ichiro is very interesting. He has a great sense of humor and his thought is very deep always. We always have to think about him and what he thinks. Stefan Stevens been thinking about Ichiro nonstop for the last 15 years. It's made him hard to concentrate on on parenting and work. Yeah. But it's worth it because Ichiro is very interesting and it's important for all of us to consider what Ichiro thinks. Mike, what is your Nobuyuki Kobayashi? Let us take the case of Ezekiel Elliott, fourth pick overall, Dallas Cowboys, and let us play a game of woke or not woke. So he's been accused of domestic assault. Um, His uh, self-identified girlfriend or ex-girlfriend put some pictures on Instagram of bruises, but reports out of Ohio say that the police can't get eyewitnesses to confirm and the Cowboys are waiting for the investigation to conclude, not jumping the gun, saying they stand by Ezekiel Elliott. So for purposes of this, all right, we don't know if he did and we don't know if he didn't do it, but let's even assume that he didn't do it. I know a fraught thing. So even with that assumption, let's even assume that he's been falsely accused. Let's let's go through some of the official statements and some of the reporting on this and ask ourselves, is this the way we want an allegation of domestic abuse, even a false allegation, to be reported, thought of, spoken about, woke or not woke? Here, Drew Davison starts his article in the uh, Dallas Star-Telegram with this. He's talking about the... GM for the Cowboys, essentially. Stephen Jones doesn't think the domestic abuse allegations hanging over first-round pick Ezekiel Elliott will become a distraction. Do you think that's woke or, or not woke? I dispute the woke or not woke ta- taxonomy categorization. Yeah. Should I have different words for it? <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. All right. It's not my, it's not my premise. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I'm saying is this... Is this, as a first sentence, is this best practices of dealing with this as a societal issue, even though you're writing for the sports section? Do you think that, that's I think fine? definitely not. Definitely not. Okay. I, I really, there is a case that like the, the cowboy fan wants to know you have, uh, you're serving the community of cowboys fans. You want to know the, what the vice president is saying that. Okay. Jones, Stephen Jones, go on to say, now this is not uh, media criticism at this point. We're just examining Jones' quote. I think we know Zeke. We know his family. Obviously, Zeke knows what's going on here. To me, he he seems confident moving forward and going to work. So we know Zeke and we know his family. Let's say he didn't even do it. 
that a woke or not woke statement? Is that an understandable statement? Is that the sort of thing you would advise a uh, executive in your organization to say about someone who's been accused of domestic abuse? What do you think? Well, well, just to be clear, back to the first one, yeah. the thing that I was reacting against was the important thing we need to figure out here is, is this going to be a distraction? Yes. That is the, that is the number one thing that we need to uh, assess when it comes to an allegation. I'm going to defer to Stefan on the second one. <laughs> Say it again. All right, here we go. Jones says, I think we know Zeke. We know his family. Obviously, Zeke knows what's going on here. Oh, my God. How about no? <laughs> That's a no How about never? All right. The, uh, here's the uh, head of uh, the D- Dallas News article same by Brandon George. Dallas Cowboys officials made it clear Friday who they believe in the investigation into whether rookie running back Ezekiel Elliott assaulted a former girlfriend. Uh, spoiler alert, it's Ezekiel Elliott. Now, on the one hand, you could say, look, they, they really believe the guy. They're standing by him. And remember, we're assuming that he didn't do it. He's being unfairly accused. On the other hand, is that the thing that you put number one in an article if we're talking about this issue? Do you think that that's bad, guys? I actually think that that is a reasonable thing to write Mm -hmm. from the media perspective, that the Cowboys made it clear who they believe. That seems legit. All right. Now, here's the one that got me thinking about this. These two off-the-record sources where you get the gold. One off-the-record source, another (laughs) cowboy source, said Friday that the club believes, quote, there was an agenda here adding that NFL players are targets. That's not untrue, but is it woke or not woke? (laughs) That's bad. And now this wow. is the, and this is the one. Remember, we're going to assume that this guy has been falsely accused. Let's let's woke or not woke this statement by a cowboy source <laughs> saying, "Quote: This will be a great learning experience for Elliot." Cowboy source Jerry Jones. <laughs> <laughs> a great learn. You have been falsely accused of a crime. That's a, a great experience. learning experience. Or maybe there is a small percent chance that you abused a woman. Let's go off the record and say, what a great learning experience for him. You know what? If it's such a good learning experience, the Cowboys should off the record accuse all of their players yeah. of committing crimes uh, to improve the team. <laughs> that would improve the team. They would learn a lot. Let's, exactly. Let's, fa- let's fast forward five years. It's 11 p.m. You're flipping through the channels. Oh, it's the Game Show Network. What's on? Uh, you turn on the volume. Now remember, we are imag- we're imagining that he's been falsely accused. Woke or not woke? Not like, wow, woke. Mike, Mike, Mike Pesca's career has taken kind of a strange turn, but I'm, I'm feeling it. Yeah, you wouldn't think that phrase of the month in uh, 2016 would have such uh, sustaining currency, but apparently he turned it into, or that the Game Show Network would exist in 2021. Yeah. <laughs> And that has been woke or not woke, the, Aze- the case of Ezekiel Elliott. <laughs> Stefan, what is your Nobuyuki Kobayashi? Well, in June 1977, the Los Angeles Times published on the front page of its sports section a profile of then 23-year-old California Angels pitcher Frank Tanana. Here's how the story begins. The baseball box score you know about. Now comes Frank Tanana with the Fox score. While the box score tells you how a player fared against the other team in a particular game, the Fox score tells you how he's apt to fare with the other sex, known collectively as foxes or feeks. 
later in the evening. More than half of this 2,000 or so word profile by Charles Mayer is devoted to Tanana's road trip sexual proclivities. What led up to it, Mayer writes, was a question about how a famous bachelor pitcher deals with female opportunities on the road. There's no problem, Tanana said. You either want them or you don't. If you don't, say you've got a pitch and you don't want female companionship, you go to your room and tell the operator, ma'am, I don't want any calls. Or you can go the other way. Simple. Either you want feeks or you don't want feeks, Josh. Mayor asks Tanana, how about the quality of the feeks? That's what he wrote, the quality of the feeks. Veteran sports writer Charles Mayer. LA Times. How do you spell that? F-E-E-X. Feeks. Tanana breaks down Feeks quality city by city for the readers of the Los Angeles Times. Lately, I've been having a very good time in New York. Texas ladies are really, well, I see a lot more pretty women in Texas than a lot of places. Here's your weak ones. You got Oakland, Detroit, and Cleveland. Make that Oakland, Cleveland, Detroit, and Kansas City. As far as my luck is gone, KC is a little shaky. Baltimore is in that class. Shaky. I'll put Minnesota in a middle division, Milwaukee in a lower division. The best part of this might be that the reporter delivers this to the reader in dialogue form. Is the difference largely a matter of style, Tanana was asked? No, a beautiful woman is just a beautiful woman. Clothes don't figure prominently in the ratings then? No, hell no. The only way they get rated is when the clothes come off. I'm going to pause to note that this story was published seven years after Jim Bouton and Balfour described beaver shooting, spying on women from the bullpen or criminally by drilling holes in or slipping mirrors under hotel room doors. 35 years later, Jose Canseco wrote about slump busters and road beef in his tell-all juiced. But it's one thing for a player to explain the male locker room code of sexual misconduct in a memoir and another for a player to be willing to describe it to a reporter while sitting in the dugout, knowing it will be printed the next day in one of America's largest newspapers. Even in 1977, back to the story. After Tanana explains how cities can move up in his rankings, Mayer delivers one of the great segues in sports writing history. All this may make it sound as if Tanana is in hotter pursuit of a good time than a good season. Fear not, Angels fans. When it comes to pitching, Tanana is very disciplined about his feeks. Two days before a start, he's all work. The other two, though, not so much. But even then, say you've been out amongst them an hour or two, Mayor asks. If you haven't come close to doing what you want to do by midnight or one o'clock, Tanana advises, forget it. Come back tomorrow and try again. The story later notes that Tanana had just read Atlas Shrugged and The Fountainhead and listens to Rod Stewart and Fleetwood Mac. No ballet or opera or anything like that. Too much culture for me, Tanana says. The young Frank Tanana was basically Nuke Lelouch, and Charles Mayer was his Boswell. The story ends with more jock-pencil dialogue. Have you contemplated a permanent relationship of any kind, Mayer asks. Like marriage, Tanana says? That would be one permanent form. No, nothing that permanent. No, see, to me, when you get married, the variety stops, and I enjoy variety. Then comes the reporter's kicker. Women, in other words, are like pitches. You can't keep going with the same one. 
Frank Tanana would win 240 games in 21 seasons for the Angels and five other teams. His Feeks ways, though, appear to have ended on November 6th, 1983, when in an Arizona hotel room, he says he discovered Jesus. I understood that I was dead in my sins, Tanana says in a story on MLive.com that was just published a few days ago. Now he spends some of his time proselytizing to baseball players. Hat tip here to Pedro Mura, who covers the Angels for the LA Times. He found the Tanana story a couple of years ago, tweeted a link then, and when Tanana's name came up in a conversation recently, Mura retweeted it. So thank you, Pedro, for this indispensable contribution to the annals of American sports writing. Josh, what's your Nobuyuki Kobayashi? So I was doing a little research over the weekend into the history of women's sports and when into uh, one of uh, my classic rabbit holes. I found this story published in the Fort Wayne Sentinel of Fort Wayne, Indiana in 1913. It was about a woman named Miss Elizabeth Abigail Hardin. She went to Vassar and she set a very impressive uh, record in the baseball toss. She threw the baseball 205 feet in seven inches She beat the record from Miss Dorothy Smith of the class of 1914. The article goes on to describe Miss Harden. She's the daughter of uh, Mr. John Harden, a lawyer. All her girlish life has been passed in Newark. Uh, She's particularly youthful in her feelings and appearance, in her style of dressing, and her manner the girl has always been. She always dressed for school in the simplest sailor costumes. Her hair was braided and turned up as becomes a girl in the early teens, and her fine, strong young figure has never been distorted by compressing undergarments. That's just very important to know Mm -hmm. if you're a reader of the Fort Wayne Sentinel. So I was interested in the baseball toss, and a guy named J.G. Preston, who's a a saber researcher, um, a very uh, solid baseball historian, He wrote a very good and thorough article on the record for the longest baseball throw by a woman, which was very hotly contested in the beginning of the 20th century. He writes about, um, there's a story in The Sporting Life in 1910 that the holder of the record was Myrtle McCarroll of Oak Park, Illinois. She had thrown uh, the baseball 180 feet. Keep in mind that this article uh, that I found has the record uh, in in the 200s. Miss Bertha Burgett, of Elmira, New York, threw a ball 181 feet in 1902. Uh, In 1910, there was a 15-year-old who threw a baseball at the Black Springs Baseball Park in Iowa. It was part of a day of baseball to benefit the Sawyer Hose Company. That throw was was also a record. We've got a a story about a throw of uh, 204 feet two inches by a woman at University High School in Chicago. That throw was measured by University of Chicago football coach Amos Alonzo Stagg. Wow. Then, then in uh, 1909, there was another record throw, uh, and this is how the Seattle Daily Times reported it. The gentle and womanly sport of throwing the baseball hmm. was yesterday placed on a high plane by the successful outcome of a woman's baseball throwing contest at Dugdale's Park. About 3,000 spectators watched the 30 contestants compete. Miss Lizzie Arnold threw the baseball 209 feet, five and a half inches. She's an athletic young woman of 16 years. 
and her quiet ways made her victory popular with the crowd. The next development in uh, ladies' baseball throwing, 1916, Gladys Palmer of Oak Park, Illinois, threw a ball 217 feet, six inches in Madison, Wisconsin. She was a junior at the University of Wisconsin. She smashed the intercollegiate record, which was held by a Vassar girl, so perhaps the the one that I had read about. Uh, And here's how the Grand Forks North Dakota Herald described it. She is an independent girl, and when she started out, she made up her mind to do something that was not an overcrowded specialty. She thinks that athletics for women is a dandy field, so I suppose she is in dead earnest about it. So there's a lot of competition in this uh, for years to come, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. Baseball throw was part of the AAU championships from 1923 until 1957. And then I guess you, you guys can probably guess who set the record for the baseball throw, the one that that has lasted and endured babe, from that period. Babe Didrikson. Babe Didrikson tossed a regulation National League baseball 296 feet that smashed her own previous American record of 268 feet, 10 inches. She just destroyed Mabel Cutchin. <laughs> babe Didrikson throat- is to female athletes of the era what Sibelius is to Finnish composers. <laughs> It always seems to be the answer. It is. Um, so Babe Didrikson beat Mabel Cutchin by 44 feet. This was in the 1930s. She is the Sibelius of American women's baseball throwing. How did the baseball throw die out, Josh? You know, I think this is the subject for a future episode of Woke or Not Woke. Mm. Was it a woke decision to... Uh, you know, eliminate the, the women's baseball throw? It was when women were allowed to play baseball during World War II that the baseball throw may have died out as a women's sport. The subject for another episode, yeah. perhaps one day. I can't wait. We'd love your feedback when we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe in iTunes at iTunes.com slash slate podcast and leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash listen. Our intern is Laura Wagner. Our producer is Mickey Capper. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice. 
all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.